In this series, we have been looking at the greatest commandment in Scripture and how that shapes and forms the life of a disciple. Uh, and so today, we're going to be reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Uh, if you do have your Bible, I would invite you to turn there with me. If you don't, there should be a Bible in your seat in front of you there. And there's a well around you in your row available on the screen. Um, so as you get there, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, if you are able to this morning, if you could stand with us for the reading of God's Word. Here, okay. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you come to him that the Lord is good, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God in Scripture, Jesus Christ. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become a stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession of him. They proclaim the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to which one from the pastoral, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. In Providence. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you yet, my name is Joseph, and I serve on staff here. I uh, do a number of different things. One of them is I get the privilege and joy of being able to teach occasionally. And so uh, if you're a guest, and again, continue to meet you, I'd love to do that. I love God, love people, and we've been talking about the heart of discipleship. And today we're going to be exploring how the Holy Spirit forms us into greater lovers of God and lovers of others in the context of a gospel-centered community. On week, whether you're a Christian, not sure you're a Christian, or sure you're not a Christian, our hope for you is the same, and that is that uh, through God's Word being proclaimed and explained to you, that you would get a, a sense of the goodness and the grace of Jesus. And so if you guys would, please, Father, we come before your throne of grace, and we humble ourselves in your sight, Lord. We recognize that we cannot do what it is, God, that you've called us to do, even in this gathering. Lord, we cannot understand or discern or without your help. And so we ask for the power of the Spirit to illuminate your word, to make it clear, uh, to make it convicting, where we need to be convicted, God, to compel us towards obedience, to comfort us, where we need things, comfort you, God. We pray to be glorified, seen as the glorious and gracious Savior that he is, and God, that your people, uh, your church would be edified and built up into the people that you desire for us to be. We, we call upon you to do that work by the Spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. 
And everyone's talking about, number one, that God has called us to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as, our, our, as ourself. And we said that that is ultimately the heart of discipleship, is that God desires for us to be able to obey those commands. But we've also said that because of sin, we are bent inwardly on ourselves. We uh, do not love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, even though we know that we ought to, and we do not love our neighbor as ourselves, even though that the Bible commands us to do that. So... We've been talking about for the past few weeks the role of worship. I'm going to lay a little bit of groundwork before we get into the talk on community today. We've made this case that worship is the act in which we are, we are essentially pouring ourselves out to something. We are living our lives in devotion to something because we were created to worship God, that we are unceasing worshipers, as theologian Harold Best would say, that we are always, our hearts are not neutral, our hearts are always directed towards something that we desire and long for the most. That can be a relationship, that can be a career, yeah, that can be a possession, it can be anything in which we just are directing our hearts towards and living in pursuit of. But we are unceasing worshipers, and the only way in which we can actually direct our hearts towards worshiping God in the way that we ought to is by training our hearts. We actually have to retrain our heart the way in which we ought to. And that is done through particular practices that we do both whenever we gather and worship. And it's done also in practices that we engage in in everyday life. And we've talked about those things over the past few weeks. If you haven't been here, I encourage you to go back and listen to the few. So always worshiping. The question is what and how. Now today we're going to turn our attention, our emphasis, and we're going to say not only are we worshiping creatures, but we are actually also creatures that were created and designed to live in community. Like we were created and designed to live in relationship with other human beings. Whenever God created Adam and Eve in the garden, first he created Adam and he said what? It is not good that he should be alone. So he then created Eve. And then we know that Adam and Eve weren't just left there to enjoy one another in romantic bliss for forever. To be free, God called them to fill the earth and to subdue it. So he calls them to essentially create humanity. And inside humanity, we were going to, to be a people who lived in community with one another, loving one another, and loving God. Now, we know this all very far into the story, and Adam and Eve re reject God's reign and rule. They turn inwardly on themselves. They say, we know better. We're going to do this on our own. And in so doing, and in so rejecting God, um, they, sin enters the world, and now sin has not only fractured our relationship with God, it's so hard to relationship with one love people in the way that the Bible tells us to. If you guys could start the timer, that would be great, because if not, I'm going to preach for five hours, and everyone here is going to be miserable. Um, you're welcome for that, by the way. You're welcome for that. Um, I'm like five minutes in already. So uh, today, to be formed in a gospel-centered, in a gospel-centered and missional community, that essentially is filled with other people that are seeking to worship the same God. And so we've got a few points. Uh, we're going to be, of course, coming out of Peter chapter 2. Uh, the first imperative for community is rooted in our identity in Christ. The biblical imperative for the kind of community we are called to belong to is actually first rooted in our identity in Christ. In other words, we do what God commands us to do as created us to be. So we do what we do because we are who we are. Whenever Pastor Bryant Lee was here about a month ago, he said it like this. We do what we do because we be who we be, okay? And I think he was quoting someone. I don't remember who it was. But are who we are. And this is kind of like setting precedent for the passage that we find ourselves in. I'll give you a little bit of context. In 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, that's where Eric picked up. But just prior to that, um, you have to understand that first and foremost, Peter, the apostle Peter who walked with Jesus, according uh, to you, the minor. There's a, a group of Christians that had essentially been marginalized 
and they were fleeing persecution, and in, in fleeing persecution, they essentially went and colonized themselves, for lack of a better term, uh, up in kind of like an out in a region of reason that they went and colonized in the outer region, kind of living in mountains and living in caves, is because they were fleeing persecution, because I don't know if you know this or not, but persecution is not a fun experience, okay? Um, it's, it's not something that necessarily, naturally, you're going to Like, I can't wait to be mocked, insulted, ridiculed, hated, spat upon, maybe even have my children taken from me. I can't wait to be persecuted, right? So it's a natural reflex of a human to flee from persecution, Right? So here's what the Christians did. They, when they fled, they started to kind of colonize themselves on the outskirts of society. And so Peter writes this letter to them. And he's doing a few things in this letter. Number one, he's reminding them of the great hope that they have in their salvation. That's chapter one. The first part of chapter one, he says, hey, remember you and you're now from where you came. Remember hope, right? Remember all of these great and gracious things that God has done for you. But he also reminds them, I want you also to remember, though, that not only has God saved you, but in the very word that God saved you with, he also told you that you would be persecuted for his you should not surprised by the, fa- by the fact that whenever you became a Christian, things didn't necessarily get easier for you. As a matter of fact, he says, you should not be surprised that because you became a Christian, things have necessarily gotten harder for you. Because Jesus, if the world rejected me, if the world hated me, how much more is the world not also going to hate those who come in my name, right? And so Peter reminds them, he's saying, hey, don't be surprised by the fact that you're being persecuted. Don't be surprised by the fact that you're being tried. Don't be surprised by the fact that whenever you encounter trials, though, you have to understand that God is refining in you and he is perfecting in you a faith that is more precious than gold. So he says the bad news is you're going to be persecuted. The good news is in the midst of persecution and suffering, God is using you to make you into a more beautiful person. Amen, right? So this is where he starts in chapter one. But he also reminds them, though, you have to be a holy people, right? Do not neglect the fact that God has called you to be holy. Do not, do not neglect the fact that God has called you to be righteous. Do not neglect the fact that you're made and shaped and formed into the likeness and image of his son. That's the second part of chapter one. And so he wants to remind them that not only has God called them or saved them, not only are they going to experience trial and persecution, but he says in the midst of all that, you have to remember where God has still called you to be too. And this is where it, it kind of start to frame our conversation for today. The temptation to flee persecution also came with the temptation to not only withdraw from culture, church's role in culture. When we have a temptation to withdraw from culture, no matter what it be, fear of per- here it was fear of persecution. For us, we might have a temptation. When uh, to without the world to get into us or to our kids or to our family, and so we will just w- withdraw from culture outright. But nonetheless, the temptation to withdraw or the 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 uh, the, per- the pursuit of withdrawal will come with the temptation to withdraw. And it will result losing. And this is important for us to understand: if we withdraw from culture, we lose the very essence for which we were placed in it, or we lose the very primacy and the importance of why we were placed in it, and that was to be transformative agents of God's presence in it. And so Peter wants you cannot withdraw from the culture or the community in which God has placed you in. You cannot. Why? Because God has placed you in that community and culture for a purpose, and that purpose is not your purpose, it's his purpose. 
that job. He's put you in that school. He's put you in that class. He's put you in that place. He's put you there for a specific purpose. And that purpose is not only your sanctification, which it is, but that purpose is also for his goodness and glory being revealed and demonstrated to the nation. I create this community, this holy community that has been saved and that is living in the, in the context of the world, this world that is both persecuting and, and, and trying to bring about temptation into your lives and all of those things. But, but Peter says, but you cannot withdraw. And this is one of the things that I want to I say before we really get into it any further. I'm actually getting at a theology of the church that I don't know many of us hold to. And that is that you have to understand that whenever you became a Christian, you, that the church is not meant to be a sectarian, separate from culture, spiritual colony whereby you are to be removed from the world and essentially try and gain um, from contact with the world. The church is meant to be that place in which you are formed by the Holy Spirit into godly people that can live in the world but not be of it. That's what the church is in you. And is meant to be this community as you live in the world. The church is not meant to bolster your withdrawal from it. Do you understand? Two totally different views. One is we're saved, we all get together, and we all live over here, and then we just shit out on the other side of the fence telling non us, and hey, you repent and believe rub culture over here as we live completely withdrawn from the needs, from the desires, from the passions, from the struggles, from all of those things in our community. That's one view of the church. The other view of the church is actually we are overcoming that wall as a community, is engaging our name, engaging the teachers in our kids' schools, and doing all of those things, saying we want to bring the light of the gospel into dark places. Just who God has called us to be as his people. He has called us to be a people whom he has called out of darkness to proclaim excellencies of him who did that. Now, we're not meant to proclaim from the periphery. We're meant to proclaim from the inside. God transforms from the inside out, not from the outside in. And so I could just make the context for that because that dichotomy, I think, is a false dichotomy. We tend to believe that the only way in which we can pursue godliness or spiritual maturity together is if we're drawn from the world. But the Bible actually says, no, 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 you actually are called to pursue living amongst non-Christians and pagans. That's the way in which you're called to pursue spiritual maturity. In other words, we will create a dichotomy between like spiritual formation and mission. We'll create a dichotomy between like discipleship, two things, right? But we have to have both sides to the same coin. We are called to make disciples, which is an evangelistic effort, right? You got to go out to make, to build, right? So go and make disciples. That's an evangelistic area. But then we're called to mature as we make disciples. And we do that. The Bible is making clear right in front of us. That our identity essentially forms our activity. Now, I'm not going to talk so much about our activities in community today because that's going to be the subject for the next few weeks. That I, um, but I am just that that I want to know it begins with this struggle to fight sin, and it also begins with an understanding that we are called to grow up. As Christians, we're called to grow up. We're called to mature. We're called to move from. Let's read it. Put away your Psalm 2, beginning verse 1, and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So essentially he's saying put to death the ungodly things that are in your life. But he says, like newborn infants, I want you to long for the spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. What Peter is saying is 
as believers, there should be this growth pattern, right? We should grow up from infancy into maturity. That there should be this longing for spiritual mature for spiritual milk that causing us to grow, acquiring the things of God more and more as we grow up into maturity. So he starts with that understanding that we are, as Christians, called to be holy. We're called to grow. We're called to mature. We're not called to just become Christians and stay as we were when we became Christians. But God is that growth. Now we get into really the meat of what we're talking about here. Verse 4, he says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, verse 5, you yourselves like up as a spiritual house. I'm going to stop right there. First and foremost, we have to understand that when we become Christians, we don't just become Christians in isolation, right? God doesn't just save you and redeem you and ransom you from your sin and then put you in. The Bible makes it abundantly clear, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that when you are saved, you are also baptized, and not just physically baptized in water, but spiritually baptized into the body of Christ, okay? So put it this way. Before you, you were called children of wrath. You were alienated from God. You were separate from God. You were living, you were hostile in mind towards God. And you belonged. See, sometimes we think before we were a Christian, we, we were living this isolated, individualistic, lastic life. Both of those are actually false. Before you were a Christian, you also belonged to a community then. You also belonged to a society then. You also belonged to a world order then. And that was the society and the order of the world known as, by the Bible, the world. You belonged to, the Bible says, the devil. Following his ways, following his patterns, following his plan for the world, which is ultimately the destruction of it. And you were engaging in destructive pat- patterns. Self-fulfillment, all of those things turned in on yourself. The Bible makes that abundantly. You are a Christian. You're baptized into a new family, a new world order, if you will. And again, not WCW new world order, okay, for wrestling fans out there. Um, but you're baptized into a new way of living, a new way God wants to pattern creation, in which he desired to pattern creation. You're called to live into that, which you belong to a people. You belong to a community. You belong to a family. Now, the theology is that whenever you become a Christian, whether you like it, love it, or don't, right, you get, all right, the lowercase c Catholic church. But the, the obligation, the responsibility, the expectation of the believer is that you would immerse yourself in the body of Christ, accountability locally. You would actually be a member of the church somewhere, right? So the problem with thinking that whenever you became a Christian and you just joined God's global church is sufficient for you, all right, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that you were given spiritual gifts and you were given an assignment. Right? The metaphor breaks down at some point, but nonetheless, the metaphor is there that you were given a responsibility, you were given an assignment. How on earth are you going to be an eye for the body of Christ in a global sense? You can't, right? You just can't fulfill God's redemptive part of the life. So the way in which you live out your redemptive potential is to actually join a local church, use the gifts that God has given you to build up that local church, and that local church is then, as the Bible says, being built into a spiritual house. So there's two things here. Number one, when you become a Christian, now you were saved to that community. All right? Everybody say, I belong. I'm getting you to engage because you're quiet today, okay? I belong. If you're a Christian, I belong. You belong to Jesus, first and foremost, but put you into so you belong but secondly you are being built so there is a belonging and there is a building 
So the problem with just thinking that you belong, some of us struggle to just believe that we even belong to a church, but secondly, believing that you belong is it's easy to belong to something. It's not so easy to be built into something though, right? Let me give you an example. We've used this analogy before, and I'm probably going to go over time. I apologize. I'll blame it on these guys, but um, I'm just kidding. Uh, we, we've given the training in godliness sermon that we did, right? We talked about where we're actually being trained in godliness, okay? So listen, it's easy to belong to a gym. It really is. If you've got the $10, $15, $20, if you go to Lifetime, $80 a month lifetime, uh, to whatever, and, and like the third heaven up there, but... Um, the $80 a month, if you've got the money, it's easy to belong to a gym, right? Just the transaction comes out each month on a cyclical basis. It's easy to belong to a gym, all right? To belong to a gym. You don't necessarily to belong to a gym. However, if you actually want your body to be built into something different than what it is, you have to get into the gym and you have to use the gym. Like you have to actually show up and not just in the mirror or and like flex and all your like dry fit gear and look like you worked out or your yoga pants like you actually have to show up and work out and then guess what happens as you work out over and over and over again you eat right and stuff your body starts to take a different shape in a different form but it's not enough to just belong to it you've got to actually engage in it and as you engage in it then you are being built in it does that make sense same thing is true of the local church you can't just sign on the dotted line and say, okay, this is the church that I belong to, but not engage in the building process of it. So there's an element absolutely in which you should belong to a church, that you should be part of a family. But there's also a sense in which you have to understand that God is building something in the church and you have to actually willingly choose to be engaged in this building process or you're going to remain a spiritual infant always codependent, always needy, always requiring someone else to change your diaper, always requiring someone else to take care of your knee back, always requiring... So it's important that we understand that the Bible makes it clear that we are being built up as a spiritual house. We'll keep going in verse 5. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, Jesus Christ. We talked about that a few weeks. It stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and pre precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He's referring to an Old Testament passage. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, stone the builder the cornerstone and a stumbling and a rock of offense. Now he says they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So what is Peter saying here? Peter is essentially saying that, again, expect the word, because the world rejected, the world first rejected Christ, the world is also going to reject Christians. Right? So, Let's just set the tone here. Let's set the expectation. As we talk about being a gospel-centered community on mission, we're not saying that that's going to be easy. We're saying that if we're going to God, there's going to be rejection. There's going to be disappointment. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be persecution. Why? Because we are following our Lord and Savior who said, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, count the cost first because I'm telling you it's not going to be easy. But I want, to, I want us to see the beauty in the fact that even though we know that we're going to encounter trials and temptations and struggles as people of God as we seek to live out of our eyes, though, Peter doesn't say, it's going to be hard, let me make it easier for you. Peter doesn't say, it's going to be a challenge, let me lighten the load for you a little bit. Peter actually doubles down and says, it's going to be hard, but let me remind you of something. It's going to be difficult. And this is oftentimes... But the thing that comes after the but is not, let me make it easier. The thing that he says oftentimes is, it's going to be difficult, but remember. 
But remember who you are. And this is what he goes into, and this is kind of the meat of our text in verse 9. But you are chosen. He says, you are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. Wait, does it say a people for your own possession? No, it doesn't, right? A people for his own possession. Why? What comes after this comma is so important. Why do you belong to Jesus? Why has Jesus called you unto himself, saved you, is sanctifying you, and will one day glorify you? Comma, he has called you to himself. You may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. To piggyback the words of Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount, you are called to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. What good is a lamp if you, is a light if you hide it under a bushel, right? What good is salt if it loses its saltiness except to be thrown out and trampled upon? The Bible makes it abundantly clear over and over and over again. As the people of God, you have a purpose, and that purpose is to represent God, to glorify God, to magnify about God, to testify about God, to celebrate the goodness of God. Are you with me? This is what we're called to do. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Verse 10, God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So this is Peter's way of saying this should change everything for you. This truth, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. You have received mercy. Peter is saying this should be a game changer. If you're sitting under this truth and you're possessing that and you're saying, this is, the, this is true of me, I am a Christian, I believe these things, then Peter is essentially saying, this should be a game changer for you then. Life, if you understand this to be true. And then he goes on to say, beloved, I urge you then as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. In other words, to reject what the world is offering you, which wage war against your soul. In verse 12, he says, but rather I want you to keep among the Gentiles. I want you to keep your conduct removed from the Gentiles. Is that what he says? I want you to keep your conduct completely separate from the Gentiles. Only if they choose to join you will they get to see your conduct. Is that what he says? No, that's not what he says. He says, I want you to keep Gentiles when you are around the Gentiles, not if you are around the Gentiles, but when you are living as these people around the Gentiles, I want you to keep your conduct honorable among them so that when they speak against you, and they're going to, when they see what you do, speak against you as evildoers, however... There's also the hope that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That the good lives that we live as God's called and chosen people is given the glory of God through the things that we do. And so the biblical imperative for us to be community is rooted in our identity in Christ, brothers and sisters. We have to understand that the language that he uses, the temple language, the priesthood language, when he calls us to be the temple, we have to understand that we are called to bring God's presence into the world. The Holy Spirit dwelling in us and infusing life into our community is meant to live out among the world. The Bible calls us to be, or to, to be reminded of the fact that we are called to be a holy priesthood. We have to understand that the priest had a job, and that job was to represent God to the people, people to God. That we are called to be, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, ambassador, Right? imploring those who don't believe to believe. We are called to be ambassadors and ministers of reconciliation on God's behalf. We are called to be sacrifices. Everything that we do is to be done as unto the Lord in complete surrender to Him. And all of these things, though, are to be done together. Together. Like, not separately. Together. As a community, 
in relationship with one another. Theologian John Stott quote. He says, he's theologian and pastor, um, the church lies at the very center of the eternal purposes of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. Being worked out in history and to be perfected in a future eternity is not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness, but rather to build his church that is to call out of the world a people for his own glory. Belonging to a church and being built up into God's people in the context of a local church lies at the very heart of the purposes and plan of God. It's not peripheral, it's central. The Bible actually gives us some 58, 54 depends on hands in the New Testament alone about how we should minister to one another, right? In Providence, we often refer to these things as the one another's. Serve one another, pray for one another, exhort one another, admonish one another, teach one another, care for one another, consider one another more highly than over and over again. 48 to 54 times, they are, these are commands, not biblical suggestions, commands. Listen, the only way in which you can be obedient to those commands is if you belong to a community in which you can live them out and practice them. Now, you might look at that and you might say, that's things that I have to do on a daily basis to other Christians, among other Christians, with other Christians. Yes, but here's the beauty that's woven into that. God wove into that. If you belong to this kind of community where you're committed to those kind of things, you're not cultivating that in the life of that community, but you're also the one that's receiving from it. So you get to belong to a community that is praying for you, teaching you, admonishing you, serving you. Do you understand? And do you realize that it is God's grace being, as opposed to you trying to do this all on your own, God says, no, 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 I'm going to put you in a community where you're going to be surrounded by brothers and sisters that are going to be doing all of these things for you, with you, constantly, over and over and over again. And I know some of you are thinking, well, that's not what my community looks like. My community looks like every man for my home group looks like. That's not what it's like. It just looks like, you know, we get together every week and we have a meal and then we just leave. Never to talk again, maybe except group me or Marco Polo or something like that. Then I would say, and I say this, the humble, but forceful, some repenting to do. Because this is the kind of community God has called us to form and to be formed by and to be formed in. Second point, I've got to go quick. I understand there is a reality to this kind of community, this one anothering, self sacrificing, I love people, I love God, I want to glorify Jesus type community. And is that as much as we say that we want it, we don't really want it. That gospel-centered community is not because it's inconvenient, which is our, often our greatest excuse, but because we've actually rejected the gospel. See, God calls us to live in this kind of community where it's not what we do, but it's more of who we are, uh, a people called for God's, or a people for God's own possession. We are a holy nation. We are called to be those things, but we don't often live out of that identity. And it's not because of inconvenience primarily, although that's what most of us say. The reason that we don't live in a community is that the root of our rejection of gospel-centered community is idolatry. Now, we say it's inconvenient, but inconvenience is like the fruit of the root. The root is when we worship false gods or when we live with this intense devotion to the service of gods other than the God of the Bible, and then all of a sudden the God of the Bible comes in 
calls us to live in a certain calls us to live in the way in which we have been living or the way in which we desire to live come in conflict with one another, then we have a crisis on our hands. And the crisis is this. Which one am I going to choose? Am I going to live in the way of Jesus and the obey the man of Jesus? Or am I going to and the flesh is signaling to you all the time, it's all about you. It's all about your tribe. It's all about you and your little flock and little family. Don't worry about other Christians. Don't worry about the church. You're part of the church. Don't worry. Take it easy. Like to, you don't have to belong to anything. You don't have to like just God. Sit back. Understand that God doesn't really expect that much of you. That's what your flesh is telling you. But the Bible over and over and over again says, no, no, no. Love one another. Serve one another. Pray for one another. Care for one another. Suffer with one another. Celebrate with one another. Rejoice with one another. Don't withdraw. Press in. But the reason that we don't press in is because oftentimes what we will do is we will surrender not to the God of the Bible, we will surrender to the false God that we are worshiping. Jesus, calls, who calls us to live as a sacrifice, commands us to live in community and to serve one another in the context of community. The reason we often find it inconvenient is because what, or find it inconvenience is what Jesus is asking us already want to do. And what we already want to do, what we naturally are designed to do by sin, is to turn inwardly on ourselves and to reject God and to reject others. Now the idol that lies at the root of what was worshipped in the Garden of Eden, whenever Adam and Eve rejected God, they rejected his reign and rule. They chose to uh, autonomize themselves from God, to separate themselves from God. And that is the same idol that we worship over and over and over again. And I've got four quick because I think they're important. Four offsprings of worshiping the idol of self and four things that destroy gospel-centered community before it ever really even begins are this. Number one is individualism. The name of you called the ideology down to you, whether you know it or not, the kind of air that we believe, breathe in our culture is that we are at the center of everything. Now, you, I know many of you are like, no, I don't actually believe that I'm at the center of everything, right? You don't actually believe that with your mind, but you live in the world to be perfectly curated to you and for you. Now, individualism in the life of a believer, though, gets perverted this way. In the life of a believer, we will start to believe that we are at the center of God's, opposed to believing that God's plan is to be at the center of our lives. Say that again. Individualism says, you are at the center of God's plan for your life. The Bible says God's plan should be at the center of your life. Individualism wants you to believe that you are God's greatest project. But the Bible would lead you to believe that the church in the world, living out its redemptive potential, becoming who God has called and created as God's project, is God's project. Purifying, glorifying his church, his bride. And to do that in the context of a world in which we are constantly inviting people in and seeing them transformed and renewed by the gospel through the Spirit, that is God's plan. All of our plans should fold into narrative and a smaller narrative. Okay, what happens whenever someone with a smaller role rejects the, the role that they have in the greater? Like what happens in Lord of the Rings if orc number 37, the guy in the very back that doesn't even get his name on the credit like that, if he just decides he's going to go off script and go over here and start doing his own thing and try and draw attention away from Legolas or Frodo or one of the main characters, what happens in that moment? Gone. No more job for this guy, right? Orc number 37 gets, report, gets replaced with orc number 38. That's meta-narrative for your own isolated little individualistic narrative. Then you have to understand that, that it's not 
the meta that's going to have to bend to you. You're going to have to bend to the meta. So God's meta self-narrative is that he defying will one day glorify your little life and your little plans fit inside of that. When you start trying to make God's big plan fit into your little plans, that's whenever you run into problems. And so we need to repent of our, our individualism. Second is idealism. When we have an idea of community in our minds, and when the church doesn't fit that idea, we either give up on it or we reject it outright. What do I mean? Troy Christian community. I'm, I'm just going to let the quote speak for itself, and then I'm going to kind of a little bit of commentary and move on. All right. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my favorite books, a book called Life Together. If you don't own it, get it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, honest and sacrificial dreaming, because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. They enter the community of Christians and judge one another and God accordingly. It is not we who build. Christ builds the church. Whoever is mindful to build the church, whoever is mindful, mindful to build the church, is surely well on the way of destroying without wishing or knowing it. We must confess, he builds. We must proclaim, he builds. We must pray to him, and he will build. We do not know his plan. We cannot see whether he is building or pulling down. It may be that laps are for him the great times of construction. It may be that the times when, from a human point, are great times for the church are times when it's pulled down. It's a great comfort which Jesus gives to his church. You confess, I alone will build where it pleases me. Do not meddle in what is not your providence. Do what is given to you and do it well, and you will have done enough. Live together in the forgiveness of your sins. Forgive each other every day from the bottom. Idealism destroys community before it ever even starts. The way in which we build the kind of community we want to, to, to be a part of is to recognize we're not the ones building it. We just obey God, do what he, calls, what, what he said he's going to do. We obey, we let Jesus build, Amen. We obey those 48, 54 commands, and then we see what God does. The problem is, though, whenever the, dream, the idealized community doesn't fit our, it, our, we be our dream in it, we just start gossiping. We just start saying, I can't believe he said that. Can you believe he said that? I can't believe she did that. Can you believe she did that? I can't believe they decided that. Can you believe that they decided that? Come on, everybody, get on my team. Get on my team real quick. Come on, everybody. Jersey, here's your jersey. You're on my team, right? You're on my side. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. Let me, like... Rant, rave, whatever I have to do in order to make it known that I'm completely unsatisfied, not happy, not, not at all uh, grateful or consigned to the fact that God is doing center of, right? No acknowledgement of that, just the acknowledgement that the church needs to bend and conform to our desires. And it destroys community. Third thing, indifference. We just don't care what the Bible says about community, we'd rather do it on we just don't know what the Bible says about the role of community, so we don't submit ourselves to the authority of it in this area. Now, that's why we're doing this sermon series, in, in part, is because we don't want people to be able to claim complete ignorance in these matters. But we have to understand, brothers and sisters, that when we are saved, we now belong to this new family. We now belong to this new society. We now are citizens of heaven, no longer citizens of earth. We are now 
part of the family of God, no longer living under the family and the reign and rule of Satan. We are a part of our old life and another pattern and new ones observed. They either need to be redeemed or they need to be rejected, or in some cases they can be received outright, but for the most part, our entire lives have to be transformed and reoriented by the power of the Spirit. This can only be done, though, the God point number three. If we try and put anything else at the center of what we're doing here in our church, it's going to fall apart. All right? Say that again. Try and put anything else at the center of any community other than the gospel. It is bound to fall apart. Enough to hold the church. Relational like yoking up with people your age, your skin color, in your stage of life, yoking up with people that are like uh, parents of newborns or empty nesters or whatever it is, yoking up with other singles or, you know, speaking up with those people, people that love hunting, fishing, riding motorcycles, whatever, you know, crafting, whatever. Just yoking up with those people and saying, these are going to be the people, community people that I do life with is not going to sustain the kind of community that God's calling us to build. What happens, let's say, for instance, you're a part of a group of friends inside the church that really love to go bow hunting, Right? Just every day you go bow hunting. This is, you, like during bow season, you're gone every weekend, right? Forget church, we're gone. Bow season's here. All right, wait. Bow, all the rare, now we get to go bow hunting for turkeys, okay? So then it's like if I could bow hunt for dove, I would do that too, but it's a little bit challenging. But in the off season, you just get together and you dream and you recalibrate your bows and all of that kind of stuff and so on and so forth, and you get ready. Let's say you know that something happens to you on the. What do you think happens to you in the context of that community? You get ostracized. No, we're still going to be friends. Yeah, you're still going to be friends, but I guarantee you not a friend like you were. They're not a friend that's experiencing the joys of marginal hunting together. So in a small example, you scale that out over almost anything. What happens whenever you've built your community and your relationships on a life stage thing, and then in the midst of someone's life stage, something happens to them? And it changes the way in which they've been living their life. Now, hold get ostracized. The gospel has to hold the church together. Shared burdens won't hold the church together. Shared desires won't hold the church together. Personal willpower isn't going to hold the church together. Okay, I have to say this to those that know the Enneagrams. The hold the church together. It can't. If it did, I would have already tried it by now. It won't happen. Willpower cannot hold the church together. Personal effort, a desire for achievement, cannot hold the church together. Only the gospel has to be at the center of what we're doing and tethering us together. The gospel of the grace is the only way, being at the center of our community, is the only way we're going to be willing to give our lives for one another. There's no way I'm going to live my life sacrificially for you if I don't have at the center of my life a God who lived his life sacrificially. You know how sinful I am. Has so rigged the gospel in a way to use, like one theologian said, God uses jujitsu. Basically, he takes the weight that the enemy went to put on, on, on Christ, and then he jujitsus it and uses it against the enemy. Same thing in which you're going to live in gospel-centered community. The demands and the commands to live in gospel-centered community is to rely upon the weight that Jesus already bore. That Jesus already paid the price. That Jesus already did what needed to be done, wonder to purchase and redeem and to belong to. The only one we see that Jesus died, not just to save sinful people individually, but to form this sin-fighting community that seeks to engage in his redemptive work in the world. Only then will we have the desire and sense to engage in a life lived. We have to see Jesus, our high priest, ministering to our needs, our greatest need, in order for us to faithfully minister to the needs of others. We have to see Jesus being that chief agent of reconciliation. 
And that has to be repeated and rehearsed and recited over and over and over again. The truth that we need to be speaking to one another is that your life is not your own. You have been bought with a price. That Christ has done all that you need and given you far more than you deserve. And this is to be at the center of what you do. One of the primary ways in which the church has been regularly reminded of and nourished in this truth that Christ has gone ahead of us to form this community is through the sacrament of communion. So we at Providence, we began partaking in the sacrament each week because we want to be regularly reminded the community that Christ is forming is the community that Christ is forming by his body and his blood being broken and shed for us. So every week we take, we come down and Christians that are here will take of the bread and dip it in the cup and do this because the bread for us and the blood represents the blood of Christ that was spilled for us. And so if you're a Christian here in a moment, I'm going to pray and then I'm going to invite you forward to come and receive communion. Just a reminder, if you're in the room and you need the gluten-free option because you're celiac or allergic or anything like that, then we, you can actually bread here at the center for you. But after you've received it and you want to receive prayer, maybe something in the sermon has convicted you or stirred you, or you just want to receive prayer for something else going on in your life, there will be men and women on the sides over here that will pray for you, and I encourage you to go and receive prayer from them. But if you're not a Christian, then this time we would ask, rather use this time, simply to reflect on what's being said. Now, we, we don't do this to be... Uh, particularly sectarian, uh, we want you to come and receive from this table, but we, we know that the Bible makes it abundantly clear that communion is reserved for those who are come and receive communion. You're essentially proclaiming something you don't believe in yet. So if you want to believe, then we will put a prayer of belief on the screens for you, and uh, you can pray that prayer. You can look over that, and uh, if, you, if you pray that prayer, we would love for you to just make that known to us. You can over you, talk to you. Um, we, we want to engage you at that level. But if you guys could please stand to your feet. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul recalls the night that Jesus was betrayed. It says that he sat at a table with his disciples and he held up to them the bread and he told my body, which is for you. And he tells them to do this in remembrance of, of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And after the, cup, after the supper, he took the cup and he held it up to him. And he said, this is the cup, new covenant in my blood. Do this for as often as you drink it and of this cup of me. And he says, for as often as this bread, you do this and you proclaim my death until I come. And so, Christians, when we come and receive, I want us to remember that what God has done for us in Christ, we are simply celebrating and remembering this morning. And we're receiving a tangible reminder of grace. Father, we're nourished by this much for the grace that's been revealed to us in Christ. We thank you that we have been given all that we need and far more than we deserve, God. Lord, we know that we were born into this world sinfully, worshiping self and seeking to live in isolation. But God, you have called us to be worshipers of you and lovers of people, God, community of believers that live countercultural, counterformative lives in the communities that you've called us to. And we know, God, that's not easy. So there's sin that we need to repent of, God, because we have rejected your word and we have sought to live also in isolation and service, such as we need to be repentant of this, this morning. We also need to be rejoicing in the fact that you have offered forgiveness for our sins. You have shed your blood. You have given your body for us. And so as we prepare to come and receive communion, I pray that we would do it with both offered forgiveness, but God, I pray that we would do it soberly, knowing that there are things that we need to repent of and receive your grace for. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen.